After a 12-3 run following the All-Star break, the Rangers have cooled off, losing three straight games in their playoff push. What's gone wrong for the Blue Shirts? Can they overcome Chris Kreider's foot injury? We asked New York Post beat writer Brett Sergalis. We are also joined by the captain of the 1980 United States Olympic hockey team, the man that led the miracle on ice, the great Mike Arruzzioni. All that and more next on Up on the Blue Seats with the New York Post. Welcome to the Up in the Blue Seats podcast, a New York Rangers podcast with the New York Post. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate the show five stars and write a nice review while you're at it. The Post Rangers beat writer Brett Sergalis joins us for the second time this season. We are also joined by the legend from the Miracle on Ice, Mike Yeruzioni. But now, here's your host of the number one Rangers podcast, up in the blue seats, number 10, Ron Duguay. Rangers, 16 games to go. They're still in the hunt for the playoffs. Although they did lose their last three, I felt that they played really well against the St. Louis Blues, although they went down 2-1. to one. They have coming up the Capitals on Thursday. Tough game, we all know that. And then the Devils which I believe on Saturday is a team that they should win. So can the Rangers continue their winning ways without Chris Kreider? I believe so, because it's a team effort. They just need to bear down and eliminate their chances. From what I saw them play against St. Louis, which I believe is the best team in the league, they can do it. It's going to be a grind. They're going to need some good goaltending. Igor will be back, sir, but I think Georgiev has played well enough. And so it's a kind of wait and see. Let's go, Rangers. We are now joined by Rangers beat writer, for the New York Post, Brett Sergalis. Follow Brett on Twitter at Brett Sergalis. Brett, welcome to the show. It's good to have you back. Watching last night's game, didn't know what to expect. The Rangers had lost a couple of games. Uh, wasn't going into that game with a lot of good momentum, but I felt like they played St. Louis, which St. Louis might be the team to beat this year in the Stanley Cup Finals after they won last year. They're just a powerhouse, really well balanced, but I felt like the Rangers really played them well head-to-head, except for that one little mishap from Georgiev. I thought they played them well. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I do think they played a good game. I mean, you know, when they got swept in that home-and-home home with the Flyers, you know, they were, they're they not going to say it, but they were tired. You know, like they had played a lot of hockey that, this month, and that was, uh, you know, they had played four games and five and a half nights, and that was it. And, and the Flyers are really good, and they're really good at home. So, you know, that was kind of a little bit of an unfortunate situation. And, you know, and then the Rangers got a little bit of rest. They came home, they got a little bit of rest. And, you know, and then they had what, you know, Quinn called it big boy hockey game, and that's really what it was. You know, I mean, the Blues, like you said, they're, they're a serious team. And, they're you know, you can see it every time they play why they won because they really don't make a lot of mistakes. They're physical. You know, they win battles. They're Like, that's the kind of – they don't let you get inside which the Rangers are not very good at doing anyway. But, you know, the Rangers, for the most part, matched it. I mean, they, they played well in their own zone. They they didn't make mistakes. They were on the right side of pucks. You know, Quinn called it an easy, hard game. 
if that makes any sense, which it does when you think about it, because, you know, they were kind of they weren't they weren't shooting themselves in the foot like they have in the past. They kind of were staying on the right side of things, making the right decisions. And then it just breaks on a on a bad bounce that goes in off of off of Georgia's skate. So, you know, like they, they feel good about it. But at this point, too, Ron, you, you know, it's all about wins and losses. I mean, you can feel as good as you want, but, you know, that's points that that when you play that well, you really want to have those points. So, you know, not getting there and, and dropping three in a row, it's kind of, they're lucky the guys in front of them have, have lost too. So they're not really dying in the standings right now, but uh, it's certainly not a good look over the last couple of days. Well, one player that's been a good look and that's Zabinajad. He was named NHL second star of the month in February with 11 goals, 20 points. What's different about Zabinajad that's having him play so well, so consistently. You know, it's hard to say that something's different. He's always really had the talent. You know, he's really fast. He's got great vision. He's got that scoring touch. He kind of has that little bit of deception with his shot. You know, when he comes, he likes to come wide a lot with speed. And then he gets that little quick shot off where he tries to get to the front of that and get a little backhand off. He had, he actually had that move last night where he, he made a great move and got in and then got a little forehand off that, that Bennington made a, a really good glove save on, which is probably Bennington's best save of the night, really. So I don't know if he's really doing anything different, and he, but he he's definitely growing into this leadership role. You know, I mean, when he, when he got here, there was a lot, still a lot of big personalities in the room. Uh, and he's a really quiet, soft-spoken guy, and he kind of likes to lead by example rather than saying anything. So I think now he's kind of grown into that role, and he knows that you know these young guys—they're they're looking up to him. You know, he's taken some young guys under his wing. He you know he lived with Leah Anderson for a while. Leah Anderson lived with him, I should say, for a while. You know, so he's kind of he's kind of grown into this role where he's comfortable in the spotlight, and he knows that he's kind of he's kind of one of the big guys on this team now. So maybe like that little boost of confidence if anything, to point out anything different. But, you know, the talent's still there, and it's really showing. And, you know, if you want to go back and look at that trade that Jeff Gordon made to get Zabanajad for for Broussard was, I mean, it's just an absolute steal at this point. Yeah, I think I'd like to add that, because uh, I know he made a mention a couple summers ago that he decided to get in better shape. And uh, having played the game, I know what it's like to want to play hard and be successful. But if you don't have your legs underneath you, it's hard to play hard and be comfortable. And I think that the commitment that he made a couple of summers ago to get in better shape, I think it's paying off now because he does have the skill. He does have the will. But the fact that he's stronger, he's able to compete consistently from one period to another to one game to another. With Kreider out of the lineup, Deshepi fills in on that spot. How do you think that's working out? It's kind of a stopgap at this point. Giuseppe, you know, he he's an honest player, straightforward, hardworking, but you know, no one's going to fill the shoes of Kreider, you know, like he's got these physical abilities that you really there, you can't just pick them off a tree. You can't, you can't call them up from the minors. It's not, it's not somebody that's in your lineup already. You can move up, you know, it's going to change when he's out of the lineup, no matter what it's dealing with injuries. Like every, like every team does, you know, and, and DJ Zeppi, they're trying not to disrupt the rest of the lines, I think, which was the biggest thing. You know, he wanted to keep Panarin with Strom together and fast. And he likes Kako and, and Heedle together because they're the young guys and they feel like they don't have a lot of pressure on each other. They kind of, they don't defer to like a major, like anytime one of them has played with a with a big name, either Kreider or, or Zibanejad or Panarin, they kind of defer to that guy. So he likes those younger guys together now with Howden. 
So D. Giuseppe was kind of the guy that made sense, straightforward guy. Hopefully he's, he's physical and kind of creates space for them. But, you know, I mean, that line's not going to be the same without without Kreider. It's a big loss for the team. And, like, it, you know, when you lose a guy like that, the depth is challenged. That's kind of where they're at now. And D. Giuseppe's kind of just a, just a stopgap at this point. They're trying to just, you know, plow through this this injury time. Yeah, I watch him play, and, and he plays with a lot of energy. He's got good speed, so he's getting on the puck. He's getting into corners. He's going to the net. He's not a guy that's necessarily going to finish for you like Kreider would, but that could be okay because the other two, uh, Butchnevich and Zibanejad, they can finish. So as long as he uh, competes hard, get the pucks, create opportunities for them, he could be okay. You know, when, when you look at Panarin, what he's doing, he's still the same Panarin. He's still playing well. Can you see the team going all in and putting him up with Zibanejad? Yeah, you know, that's something Quinn has done a little bit of whenever they're down. Like when they went down 2-1, it was, you know, next face-off, it was Panarin and Zibanejad out there. I mean, you know, you got to be careful not to be too top-heavy, right? And you don't want to be an easy matchup. You know, most teams have, you know, they have a good first line and first deep pair that can match up against your top guys and then you know and that's why that's what really carried the rangers through that really good stretch where they won nine of ten was that all right who are you going to match up with Kreider and zibanejad or, or panarin it opened up space it opened up a softer matchup for one of them so if you go if you go top heavy like that for the whole game i think it makes it a lot easier especially on the road it makes it a lot easier for the other team to match up but quinn's surely going to do it He's going to mix and match. You know, you get an icing and offensive zone faceoff. That's when you're going to see it. I think immediately, whenever whenever there's two big guys like this, I always think of Crosby and Malkin. Yeah, they played a little bit together, but not really, because why would you play them together all the time? But then when in certain situations, you put them out there together and it's like, oh, crap, how are we going to defend both of these guys? So I think that's the kind of that's kind of the way Quinn's going to do it going forward. When we're uh, looking at goaltending, Igor, do you have an up- update on Igor? He's been taking uh, low shots the last couple of days, actually. He's been on the ice taking low shots, nothing up high near the rib yet. Like, I don't think he's really moving around all that much. So, you know, they said he'd be reevaluated in a couple of weeks. And it's been, you know, what, a week and a half now? They hope he gets closer. He's going to have to get a practice or two under his belt and then see how he feels before they throw him in a game. But it seems about on that timeline, maybe another week or two till it starts getting serious. Yeah, I can't imagine they're thinking there's a uh, urgency. They're not going to bring him in early because Georgiev has played well. Uh, Then there's Lundqvist. Uh, Lundqvist plays in Philadelphia, and I watched him play, and I just... I, I just felt like he really struggled. He talks about uh, working hard, working hard in practice, working hard in games. I, I just felt like he was trying to overwork and he got caught out of position more than once. Uh, so what do you see the future for Lundqvist? Because they throw him in, they were expecting something big. They don't get out of it. They don't get what they wanted. Uh, I understand that he hadn't been playing, but you'd think that a goaltender has been around long enough that he'd be able to have that good composure and still be able to play. It didn't happen. What do you think the future is now for Lundqvist? Yeah, Ron, it's a it's a hard, it's a difficult situation. You know, it's like this catch-22 of he's not ready because he doesn't play a lot, but he doesn't play a lot, which is why he's not ready. So it's, you know, what do you do? He's never been a guy that's been great at the beginning of seasons or coming off long breaks. He always kind of needs to be in a rhythm, and that's something he talked about a lot over the years of like when he's playing a lot that's why he liked playing a lot because he didn't there wasn't a lot of thought about what happened or there wasn't over analyzing of, of specific things because you were playing again and that's how he got into a rhythm and that's how he feels most comfortable uh, and now he knows that this is a very different challenge in front of him he knows that it's 
it's he's going to have to prepare differently. He's going to have to have a different mindset. And it's difficult. You know, he goes into a game like that one in Philadelphia. It's tough. You know, he gives up a couple big rebounds in the first period and boom, they're down three nothing. You know, I mean, and then you wonder when he's going to play again. You know, so when you think about like the future of, of Lundquist, I mean, I don't know if he's going to get another start before Shesterkin comes back. I don't know how many more starts he's going to get this season. And then, you know, if they're out of the playoff picture, is he going to want to go out there and, and play, you know, the, a couple games and raise his stick and this is the end? It's a difficult situation because, you know, he knows he's been he's been open about it. I mean, he's he's nothing if not professional, you know, so he knows what's going to happen. He's been candid about it. He knows after the year they have to sit down and have a conversation of what's, what's his future with the organization you know does he is there a trade out there for him to waive his no move clause or does it make sense for them to buy out his contract you know it's it's tough tough decisions for a guy that's a hall of famer you know i mean he's the best goalie in franchise history it's this is this is a very strange way for his career to kind of peter off so the future is kind of uncertain but you know it doesn't seem like he's a big part of this picture in terms of playing competitive games coming down the stretch yeah i know and and i think for everyone no one wants to disrespect the guy because he's worked and has been a really good goaltender so anyways brett it's good talking with you wish you the best all right you too ron thanks man number 10 right wing ron I belong here. The way I dressed was different. I had the big 80s hair, and I probably became more popular a few years ago with doing television than I was as a player. Walked the streets, and people recognized me. It's now that time of the show where Ron Duguay tells you a story from his past in this weekly installment of Ron Remembers. The last story you heard was Jack Nicholson. It involved John McEnroe at Jimmy Buffett's house, where Jack Nicholson popped out and said, Here's Johnny. But now, let's talk about the other John, John McEnroe, the tennis legend. We know you and him were good buds back in the day. So, Ron, in this weekly installment of Ron Remembers, tell us your memories of John McEnroe. Well, okay, thank you. Yeah, I like talking about John because John and I had a lot of fun together. We were both single. I'd met him right after he had lost to Bjorn Borg in the finals at Wimbledon. And uh, he wasn't that well known back then at that time when I met him. But uh, within a couple of years, he became very popular, especially in New York. A lot of it had to do with his tennis playing, but the other part of it was uh, his character, his character on the court. And so him and I just being single, we just like going out. And uh, one of the places we go out to with Studio 54, I wouldn't say that John was very comfortable there. He wasn't a Studio 54 type of guy, but he enjoyed going. Uh, he got to meet some of my friends who at the time was Andy Warhol. I think John felt a little uncomfortable being around Andy, but he did uh, appreciate his art, which later on, John is now in the art business. So uh, his relationship with Andy kind of grew. Uh, the one thing that both John and I, the one of the things we talked about is that John would love to have been a New York Ranger for one day. And I wanted to be a tennis player for one day. So we kind of both gave each other that opportunity. Uh, one time, John was asked to do an exhibition in front of Trump Plaza, Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, and asked him, listen, I'd love for you to do this tennis exhibition in front of the plaza. You know, you can pick whoever you want. Well, sure enough, John picked me. So I got to play against John McEnroe at the Plaza. So for me, you know, I got to be a tennis player for the day. And so what do I do for John? Like John wants to be a New York Ranger for a day. I can't bring him to Madison Square Garden and put him on the ice. So I thought one night I was, I was off, I was just coming off the injury list 
And I had to go to practice. Team is on the road. I had to go to practice. John and I and a few others were out. We were partying that night, the night before. And there's about six of us. We all crashed at my place. And I get up in the morning. I said, John, you want to go to the practice rink? He goes, yeah. So we all head to the practice rink. There's six of us. And it's not all guys. We go to the practice rink. I put every one of them in a Ranger uniform. And we went on the ice. And we had a practice. And so, and I have a picture of that and I got to pull it up and I got to post it one time. So John got to be a ranger for a day. And the other thing is that, and I kind of giggle to this day, how this one thing where John and his buddies, two of them were tennis players, Peter Renner, Doug Saputo, we're sitting around my place one night doing happy hour. And one of them brought up the fact that they said, Ron, you know, you have some really nice lady friends and boy, it would be nice for us to possibly go out with them one time. And I said, really? And they said, yeah. I said, I'll tell you what. I'll make it happen. And so they kind of put a couple names together. One of them is Cheryl Tiggs and the other one is Stella Hall. And they each picked a name and, and John picked Stella Hall. She's a model. They're all models. And so I said, here's the deal. You get to take them out, go one time, have a nice dinner, whatever. I'll call them. I'll let them know you're calling and just go meet them and have fun. And so a week goes by. I don't hear from John. Another week goes by. I don't hear from John. And then finally he calls. He goes, uh, hey, Dukes, uh, do you mind if I have another date with Stella? He says, I'm, you know, I'm getting along really. I said, okay, well, another month goes by. I don't hear from John. Two months goes by. Eventually I hear from John. John says, Ron, good news, bad news. Good news. I'm engaged. I'm going to marry Stella. And so a year goes by and it didn't happen. They broke up and that's when he met Tatum O'Neill and he ended up marrying Tatum O'Neill. So that's my John story. I have many, but I thought I'd share that it was kind of cute. 40 years ago, February 22, 1980, Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, the United States played and defeated the four-time defending gold medalist, the Soviet Union, 4-3. The victory became one of the most iconic moments of the games and in U.S. sports. It was later tagged by Sports Illustrated, Miracle on Ice. My guest today was the captain and still is the captain. Welcome, my longtime friend, Mike Arruzzioni. Mike, welcome to the show. I know you've been uh, really busy. You've written a book. You've been on tour. What's that been like for you? It's been kind of fun. Um, you know, I've done five or six cities around the country. Uh, basically, I shouldn't say around the country, basically in the, in the, you know, in the Northeast, uh, Long Island, New Jersey, New Hampshire, obviously Boston. I did something at a Boston University the game. I did a book signing there. So uh, it's been it's been interesting and it's 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 been it's been fun. Okay, Mike. So because I know that uh, you've been for the longest time doing a lot of speaking engagements. You've been talking about your life as captain, the goal, having winning the gold medal, all of that. You've been talking about it. So why did you feel like you needed to put it in a book form? I, I never wanted to write a book. And, and uh, I guess as the time went on, I, I kept thinking a little bit more about it. And then I, I made a decision, Ron, and I say this in the book. I have five grandkids now. And, you know, you and I have known each other a long time. And, uh, you know, we all, everybody kids me all the time. You know, you scored one goal, you played one game, you played two weeks, whatever. And I wanted my grandkids to know that Papa's life wasn't just one game or one night or one goal. I wanted them to know about how I grew up, the house I grew up in. I wanted them to know what their grand, great-grandmother and great grandfather were about um you know my dad uh, worked three jobs took care of six kids and the opportunities my parents gave me gave me the opportunities that i have today and i, I just wanted them to know more about me and and i think it was important uh, to kind of put it in a, in a frame where they could you know get get an understanding of the house and, and the atmosphere and i grew up in a very close-knit family but you know i lived in a house with uh, in a three-family house with 20 people uh aunts and uncles and cousins and it was a great place to live and grow up and it's funny we all still basically in the same neighborhood so that was 
was really it. I, I just, like I said, I wanted my grandkids to know that my life wasn't just uh, one moment. So, Mike, I, I think we need to clarify. When you say you've only scored one goal, yes, you scored a big goal, but that Olympic season, you scored a lot of goals. And when you go back to you playing in Boston, you were a goal scorer. So it wasn't like you were going to be on the Olympic team just to be the captain. It's no surprise to me that you scored that big goal because you were capable of scoring goals. Yeah, I, well, thank you because I think I, I did have a pretty good career as a as a as obviously as a as a player in high school and then player in college and even the, you know two years I spent in Toledo and then even the year I had in the Olympic team um, my numbers were always pretty good I always averaged over, over a, you know over a point a game and I guess people don't look at that statistic they only look at uh, you know what, what they see uh, you know during the two weeks of Lake Placid but uh, I've always had confidence in my abilities uh, you know hockey was just one sport I played and I talk about that in the book I was a I was an all-state football baseball player so. Uh, I was a pretty good athlete, and hockey was just something that I ended up playing. So now you're in training camp. You're get you invited in training camp. You have Herb Brook as your coach. What is it that he saw in you that he thought, you know what, this guy Mike Ruzioni is going to make a good captain for this team? What did he see in you? That's a great question because, I'll be honest, I, I still don't think I was voted captain even though we had a player vote. You know, when you had so many kids from Minnesota on the team, I, I think Herb felt that he had to have somebody not from the state of Minnesota be, be the captain. But I, I think if, if I were to think about it, I think Herb saw that I was someone that my teammates respected on the ice and off the ice. I think he saw someone that worked hard in, in you know, daily practices, uh, workouts. Uh, I think he saw someone that the players, like I said, respected and trusted. And, you know, being one of the older players of the team, maybe he felt that I could be a guy that uh, the younger guys could talk to and work with. So, and, and having said that, it wasn't a big deal to me. It, it was nice to be the captain of the team, but, you know, 20 players in that team, I think 14 were captains of their colleges or high school teams. So it was a team of leaders. So it, it's nice to be, you know, in the locker room, you've been in many of them when, when everybody leads and everybody's a great player and a great teammate and, and a great friend. And that, that was a quality that our team had. And being the captain was nice, but it wasn't a big deal. So what was your relationship with Herb, him making you captain? Did he treat you any differently or did he just kind of, because I know he liked to play some mind games because as you know, I've had Herb, I had her for a couple of years. So did he treat you any differently? Nope. He had his whipping boys. Uh, I was one of them, Silver Coda, Jack O'Callaghan, uh, Dave Silk. Herb knew what players he could push, push and, and get in their face and, and they would react in a positive way. And he knew what players he kind of could stay away from. He didn't want to get in their face. And I was one of those guys that, that you know, Herb, Herb demanded a lot out of me on the ice and off the ice. And by getting in my kitchen and getting in my face, it was a statement to the team that uh, you guys better pick it up. He was brilliant. And, you, and you're right. You know, he, he played mind games and he was he was brilliant at it. I'll give him credit. He, he knew what he was doing when he was doing it. So I think he knew, you know, the type of player that I was. You know, you yell at me, I get mad and I work harder. Uh, you don't have to yell at Mark Johnson. He'll figure it out sooner or later. So uh, I, I think that's kind of my relationship with, with him. And, and I think being the captain, I probably had a lot more conversations with him in his office. And, you know, sometimes he'd call me in the office and it would be to scream and yell at me. And sometimes it would be to scream and yell about the team. So I never knew when I was going in there what I was going to get it was never a call in the office and tell me I was playing well so you knew when you were in that office that uh, something bad was going down you know it's funny you say that because I ended up in his office a couple of times and it wasn't about <laughs> hockey either <laughs> he's like hey Ron you're in P6 again can you just kind of stay home occasionally it was the wrong coach to be coaching the Rangers with the nightlife that was going on there well that's it is that he was accustomed to you know, dealing with younger players. And then he ends up in New York and he's got myself, Barry Beck. And so it was a different environment for him. So he had to make some adjustments. But having said that, I mean, he's probably, when I think of all my coaches, I, I liked Herbie 
probably the most because I always felt like we were prepared. He would know the other team. Everything was positive. Like I think you've made this mention where you went into the playing against the Russians, he basically had those guys dissected. Like these guys are right right now because they're they're overconfident. They're very relaxed. And I believe, and he's saying that you guys can beat the Russians. And essentially that's how I felt with Herb. I always felt like we could win. So I enjoyed Herb. Having said that, do you think there could have been any other coach in that situation where you guys could have won a gold medal with? I don't think so. With, with all due respect to a lot of coaches that are out there, I think it was a perfect storm. I think we had the right coach with the right players. Uh, you know, Herb prepared us for six months, uh, not to play the Soviets. He prepared us for six months to, to play the Olympic style of ice hockey, the big sheet of ice, the European style. And people said to her, Brooks, you can't teach in six months what the Europeans have been doing their whole life. And typical Herb, he said, I can and we will. And it was amazing how quickly we adapted to the change. To, you know, the crisscross, you know, we talked about when we were in Vegas, the, you know, the weaving and don't dump the puck in and give it back and regroup. And it was fun to play that way. And he put together a team of players that could play that way. And and we had, you know, the biggest thing was Herb, you know, at times we didn't like him because he was so demanding, but there was never a time we didn't respect him. And there was never a time we didn't trust him. I mean, we had faith in what he was doing. We thought this is the way, uh, if he feels this is the way we got to play in order to win, let's do it and, and we bought into it from the beginning and you know I've said this many times when we were playing the Soviets people always said what were you guys thinking and about when, when they took Trediak out what were you guys thinking and the thing we were thinking about and Herb said it throughout the Olympic Games was play your game play your game we were never concerned about what other teams were doing he had prepared us for six months to play this particular way and we were successful at it so why alter it and why change it so you're right he was a he was a smart coach he was a brilliant coach and we were prepared against each team we played people talk about the Soviet game but well, we, you know, we had a great tie against Sweden. The Czechs were supposed to be the best team in the world other than the Soviets, and we blew them out. So every game we played was a different challenge, and yet we were able to, to face that challenge and succeed with it. Mike, I need to make a mention of your book, and that's why you're on tour right now, and I encourage people to go out and buy it, and you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, but you tell a lot of stories, and the one story I like is your night before you played against the Russians. Old school, I'm going to sit back, relax, and I'm going to have a couple of beers and not too many highs, not too many lows. Why don't you share with everyone that story the night before you played the Russians? Well, the night before the Soviet game, and obviously, you're, you know, you've played big games before, and you can't you can't get too excited or too jacked up, and then, you know, you're not going to be able to sleep. And if you're too relaxed and calm, you're going to show up the next day, and you're going to get your head handed to you. So I've always maintained, when I played big games, is just try to keep it at an even keel. And I thought for me, you know, an even keel would be to do what I would probably would have done if I was home, was, you know, spend some time with my, my parents on my, my high school football coach and my cousin and they were all in a Winnebago outside of Lake Placid so I thought this would be a great opportunity to go spend some time with them and I had a state police officer drove me to the campsite where they were at I had a few beers with my with my dad and my mother hung there for a little while my dad got his guitar out played a couple of songs which was like we used to do when we were kids and had a little you know a little barbecue and then uh, the state police officer brought me back to the barracks uh, you know the 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 uh, dorms and uh, and that was it I just ha- had a nice relaxing evening all right so now we got to talk so now you win the game now you have to prepare going against Finland and there's this huge celebration what was it like for you now the night before playing Finland, were you having a couple of beers again? 
Yeah, I did, but I didn't have them. I didn't go with my parents. I think we had we snuck a few beers into the village, into our into our uh, little Winnipeg, a little uh, trailer pot home that we were living in. We were the U.S. athletes were little trailers, four guys to a trailer. So we, you know, we had a nice little relaxing night uh, that night as uh, we were ready to go out because you couldn't go downtown, obviously, because people were crazy and the village was a little buzzed too much. So you needed to kind of just sit back and we just sat back as a team, guys, you know, four guys to each trailer, a couple of guys came, came over to our trailer just to again just to. Relax. You know, we knew it was a big game, and we were, we were ready to play the game. And it's funny, Ronnie, after we beat Finland on a Soviet Friday night, we show up to practice Saturday morning, and we're laughing and joking, and we're signing pictures, and Herb comes in and flips out. And he probably put us through the hardest practice or the second hardest practice we had all year. And we were like, why is he so pissed off? You know, we just beat the Soviets. And he, he again, we talked about it earlier. He was a brilliant coach. He was prepared. He knew we were going to get in excited and happy. And he needed to break us down uh, and get that energy out of us to get us ready to play on Sunday. And I, I hated to say it at the time, but we were ready to play on Sunday. We didn't need to skate our asses off on uh, on Saturday morning, but uh, the, the point was well taken. You can read a lot of these stories in the making of a miracle. The book is out now on Amazon or wherever you get books. And follow Mike on Twitter at Muruzione, M-E-R-U-Z-I-O-N-E. Mike, I spoke with the director with Ben Affleck as well, Gavin O'Connor of the Miracle movie. I spoke to him on the 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice. How did you think that movie came out? Did you think it was pretty accurate? Did you enjoy it? Obviously, it's heralded uh, as one of the best sports movies of all time. Yeah, I enjoyed it. You know, it, typical Hollywood is a couple of Hollywood scenes here and there. But what I thought that, you know, I've always told people it's really the Herb Brooks story and we're a part of it. I thought the HBO documentary was spectacular. And again, I, I liked the movie. You know, a couple of scenes here and there were, like I said, a little Hollywoodish. But I thought what the movie did was captured the moment. It captured the closeness of our team. Uh, I think it captured what the moment meant not only to myself and my teammates, but what it meant to a country. So with that aspect of the movie, I, I thought they touched it and hit it. And Kurt Russell, he was brilliant as Herb. I mean, it was actually eerie watching him, although I told Gavin that he made Herb a little friendlier in the movie. Hey, about uh, your teammates and how close you were with your teammates, I got to play with one of them or actually three of them, but one of them is Mark Pavlich. I loved him as my center. I scored 40 goals with him. I've always appreciated him. As a little man, he played big. He's had his issues the last few years. Can you give us an update? Because I know the Ranger fans would want to know, how's Pav doing? Yeah, you know what? He's still being evaluated. Uh, I, I haven't talked to him in a couple of weeks. Uh, I've been running around, but the, my thought is probably when I get through this next wave of trips here to give him a call and check in and see how he's doing. But our teammates check in on him. Uh, Katie Million, who handles our team, is always uh, you know checking in to see how he's doing. John Harrington coaches not far from where Pab's being, um, you know, where he's staying. So I think it's still an evaluation process. You know, when I talked to him a few weeks ago, he sounded fine. He's, you know, he was, you know, hey, Rizzo, things are good, and I feel good. But I, I think there's obviously some demons there that uh, they're trying to figure out what it is, and maybe it's a medication issue that they have to find. But, um, you know, as you as you said, Ron, he was a great teammate. He's, you know, kind of quiet and reserved. So, you know, when we heard about some of his issues, we clearly thought there's something wrong because that wasn't the kid that we played with and knew. Well, I appreciate it. I, really well said, Mike, and, and we're all big supporters of you. You're a great guy. Anyone who knows you, you're a good guy, and you're about victory and winning, and keep talking about your victory. There's always ugly out there, and it's going to happen, unfortunately, but you keep, you stay strong. We wish you the best. We hope you sell a lot of books. Thank you, my friend. All right. Thanks, bud. I'll see you on a golf course soon somewhere. Ladies and gentlemen, that you direct your attention to Center Ice for a special presentation. That's a wrap for episode 14 of Up in the Blue Seats. 
Thanks to our producer, Jake Brown, for producing the show all season. Subscribe to the show, rate us five stars, and write a nice review wherever you listen. You can follow me on Twitter at Ron Duguay 10 Thanks for joining us. Talk to you all next week.